Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, welcome back. You've been traveling a bit, uh, and we're back. I'm back. I'm back. Hi. You're back in England. So let me first say, uh, sorry, to, uh, I, I, I cut into your initial intro. Hello, but so I carried all of my podcasting gear with me all the way around the world. We nice to do a podcast. But we never managed. We could have. We could have. We we could have. I you know it's 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 my fault. I was I was really busy. I was in New Zealand. Uh, a lot of crazy stuff went down there. I, I think we'll talk about some of that. Then it was in Australia. Uh, a lot of really interesting exploratory work that I think everybody on this podcast would be interested in hearing about. But uh, you know, time zones, world changing stuff. Time it, zones it are was, challenging, especially like you. You don't like. I feel like because I live in a country that's kind of continental esque. Like you, kind of. I know my own country's time zones, but like, and I know England's because we talk and, and a couple of couple of friends in the UK, but. It's tough once you get. It's tough to know time zones. There's a lot yeah, of them. And uh, boy, you know, if the hard thing about flipping uh, the interesting, if London to Australia, it, I mean, it is the other side of the planet. It's about twelve hours difference. So you're flipping day and night. And the the thing that's hard if you're doing that kind of flipping regularly is. You're trying to hold on to some semblance of your own routine. Yeah. Um, you know, just just how you wake up and how you go to bed and what you think about and do and, and you know, your, your, your rituals and habits and all the things that kind of give your life healthy structure or unhealthy structure, a bit of both. Uh, it, 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 it does tend to go out the window unless, unless you're really scheduled and planned and organized about trying to, to impose some of yourself upon a new space that you're just visiting temporarily. And it's a very odd thing to do. But then, you know, when you're someone like me who you look at the year and I'm probably doing that half the year, it, it, it becomes necessary to learn how to kind of carry myself with me wherever I go. And, and, and I thought that the next evolution in my ability to do that was going to be to bring uh, my podcasting gears so that we could keep the conversation rolling. But I failed at that. But next time, Next time we'll we'll succeed and we'll have a chance to do it next like in a week because yeah. we're getting back on a plane to New Zealand next week, which will be really interesting. I should tell you more about that. But uh, so we'll have another chance to try. I will carry the gear. I will lug this crap. It's not crap. It's great. But I'll, I'll lug this stuff all the way around the world, and we'll see if we can if we can make use of it. I love it. Yeah, and then a poof, two weeks goes by. So how how uh, what's happened in your world? Yeah, my my world is generally kind of. Yeah, nothing much. Uh, you know, it's my normal kind of vibe. Some podcasting, some church life, some exercising, some contemplation, and the Mueller report came out, which is you know. Oh yeah, we got to talk about that. But the so you mentioned in uh, a text that we shared a few days ago that you you'd quoted our podcast in one of your sermons. I did, I did. I well, I, I, was, I talked about the an, the anthropic principle. I was talking about hmm. sort of speculation and you know, like what it what, like. You know the the difference is what we can know, what we can't know, and I, I was talking about the anthropic principle. So you know, this is cool. I, this just occurred to me. 
Um, but we're both preachers. Exactly. Of different sort stripes. Yeah. But because I was just going to say that I quoted one of your sermons in uh, a recent talk that I gave. Nice. I, I loved how, remember when you, we were talking about optimism and pessimism and, yeah. and you talked about, well, that's really kind of the, that's not the, that's just not the dichotomy that matters. We shouldn't look at it that way. It's, it's about hope. Hope. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, do people like yeah. that? Yeah, oh, people love that. Stuff. Nice. Yeah. Nice. You want, you, want, you want more of that, then you got to go to Scott's church. That, put, of- that puts the asses in the seats, baby. Hmm. Yeah. yeah but, you know, like that. it's interesting. I'm curious. Like, the, I mean, it's funny because the Mueller report came to att- the Attorney General, William Barr, on a Friday. And so all weekend on American news, it was like, breaking speculation, breaking speculation, because nobody knew anything, right? So, so just got all these people to talk about and speculate. <gasps> yeah, I, oh, new breaking speculation. So it's like, no, no, nobody knows anything. Like, why are we like, but, but I'm curious. Exhale? Is, is it? And then, of course, the, they turned uh, the summary of the report around. Now we know the report is over 300 pages long. And so there were four, it's a four page summary, which 80 words of Mueller's were in it. I, I wonder though, in, like in the UK, do people care about this? I mean, is there, is there like, or do your country men and women from Canada that you're in touch with, I mean, do people, are people following this outside of the United States? Hmm. Uh, well, so, I mean, the last thing that uh, the rest of the world needs to do is inflate Americans' ego. Exactly. But, uh, <laughs> but the honest reality is that uh, everyone is following this. And some people are following it because it matters to them, like the policy direction of the United States. But most people are following it just because it's, you know, the same reason that you slow down when you pass, you know, a burning car on the other side of the highway. I mean, it's just the spectacle of the carnage is totally fascinating i mean people here are dialed into brexit that way i mean i i feel like are they uh, yeah oh i've never i've never seen Hmm. and and i would say too at least i'm dialed into and at least it's it's a little it's somewhat in the news like netanyahu's troubles in israel i mean that is Hmm. on the radar here certainly i mean it's interesting what is so you know what is just just talking to theater for a moment what is wonderful about uh british politics and the theater of it is one. So the chamber is, and I'm sure now you've everybody's seen sort of recent images on television. It's it's a very packed chamber, right? It's like 600 people in this like standing room only place that is deliberately small. So there is a sense of uh, of, of jostling in the political arena. That that was a deliberate design decision of 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 the chamber itself. But also, I mean, you have all of these Brits who, and, and frankly, there is a you know, real social stratification in, 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 in the UK still. I mean, most of these people have gone to Oxford and Cambridge and, and, and so they're they're you know, they're eloquent. <laughs> you guys call, that's called Oxbridge, right? The Oxbridge yeah, yeah, type. That's right. Absolutely. So there's this kind of Oxbridge eloquence in the in in the kind of witty repartee that they do back and forth. And I mean probably now everybody has seen the the speaker of the of the House of Commons, and he's like, "No, no, there will be order, order." And it's just it's it's this cast of wonderful rumpled characters with bow ties. I mean, I'm 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 stereotyping it, but there is there is still that element. And uh, you know, you shake your head and you think, "Oh my goodness!" I, yesterday, there was this 
a conservative member of parliament stood up and his 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 introductory remarks he's sir something or other in his introductory remarks he says now now i've never considered myself a man of the people <laughs> but, <laughs> like as if to say I mean, the reality is that the, 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 I, I, there are all these riffraff in, in in society, and I don't I don't I don't fraternize among them. I would never be seen in their presence. But nonetheless, I'm going to speak on their behalf because I am a knighted person in the realm. Blah, blah 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 blah. You know that these characters continue to lord over British. Have society. you seen the it, Crown? The show The Crown. I mean, dude. I mean, everybody I, here has seen The Crown. I love I love that one scene where she gives that speech, like. It's really you people with your boring lives that make England strong. <laughs> with your boring lives. Uh, oh, it's so great. So yeah, so I love uh, I love the theater of uh of British politics and it is very different. You know, parliamentary democracy um where the executive you know isn't in a white house but is in, you know, effectively the House of Representatives. And has to execute from there. It 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 brings it all into a much more uh, theatrical realm. It also requires that the head of government be a good debater. Yeah, I read I read a piece in, in the Guardian like last week or two weeks ago. The, the it was one of the Brexit kind of related votes or whatever, and they were saying that if Theresa May doesn't prevail this time around she just needs to resign because they're reflecting on how british parliamentary stuff works and one party comes in you take control and you need to have your government together to appoint a government run a government and internally if you have if you don't have the confidence in of your own party then the government's just not going to work like it's not gonna it's a system where you have to have a person that's strong if either party when they ascend to the prime minister because They've got to get the party functional to run the government. Where again, the United States works slightly differently because of the branches of government and the and the competing branches and stuff. But it's just an interesting point of how like this Brexit thing has really. It's not just hurt her on this, but it it, it the system's not designed to have a kind of embattled prime minister that's this embattled, right? Where hmm. it's tough for the system to function well like that of either party. It doesn't matter what party they're in, right? Right. So I mean, uh, I mean, I. Depending when people listen to this podcast, this will be old news. But uh, the latest, as as we're recording this, the the latest um, pageantry was yesterday, and so effectively, the house took. It would be as if it would be as if the executive branch said, "Well, we don't know what to do. What do you guys want to do?" And the house took over government effectively for a night, and they ran a series of what they called indicative votes. Which is just to say, if if all of you are voting freely, forget about your party allegiance. Here are eight options of how we could do Brexit, and let's just do an indicative vote. Doesn't bind, but let's see if any of these options would gain a parliamentary majority, so that we could do it this way. And the the, <laughs> I mean the the beautiful dumpster fire of it all was that every one of these options got voted on, and. None of them, they were all voted down. None of them achieved a majority. But if you look at them, what people effectively voted down is they said they voted both that, no, we don't want to Brexit without a deal and we don't accept any deal. Which the irony, the, the irony of, of this whole thing is like, okay, we want 
Brexit to increase British autonomy. Now, because we've kind of screwed up, the European Union has more control over terms than they had before. Right. <laughs> it's just crazy. And I suppose, I mean, where my head starts to go is, you know, there are many, I guess, bigger themes, bigger lessons to draw out of what we're seeing taking place um, with with Brexit, um, with, you know, the Mueller report and the aftermath of that. And I think I think that really is sort of part of the task. No collusion, full exoneration. I'm fully exonerated. <laughs> this report does not exonerate the president. It even says I never grabbed women where I said, and that all my business is great. A full exoneration. How does he know that? He's never read the, re- the report. And he's never gonna. He's never read anything longer than twelve pages. Twelve pages is a stretch. I, I thought it was also interesting, and you know something to hum about. That apparently in sort of immediate polls after sort of Barr's report on the report came out, uh, you know, effectively people were split on on whether the report meant that they were more or less likely to support the president, which is to say that, you know, the the public discourse is so fragmented that the the content of the report is really irrelevant to public opinion. Uh, we're always going to take it and 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 believe what we wanted out of it. And and I think that was why. So what what is interesting is that you know as an outsider on another continent, but engaging with the American media, it seems that after the report failed to give some kind of smoking gun. Well, that, I mean, well, we don't know what what it, what. The summary well, of the report, <laughs> right? Because it's over three hundred pages, and there's obviously a lot of evidence. There's obviously a lot of stuff in there, but apparently, on the thing about you know, was there sort of a, a cooperative effort to work? Right, with right. It's not that we there wasn't collusion between individuals, but there wasn't. A, it, there's nothing. There's not enough evidence to prove a criminal conspiracy. It's basically sure. and 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 uh, and given the failure to present that it seems like the the democrats and a lot of the media that was looking for that smoking gun has just moved on so oh, okay well that that was embarrassing because we really thought we were gearing up for a big story there and there's no story there so we're going to move on and try to move on to the, the next thing and it just you know it indicates that there is this sense that it is going to be a meaningless thing a meaningless exercise unless there is some kind of undeniable reality yeah yeah that yeah is, yeah that it that it that is put in in front of us in a way that cannot be uh unseen once we see it and and so if i can sort of move out of move this conversation a bit uh, out of the you know just the the gossipy news of the day and think about the bigger questions it it seems that it seems that um, it is like the, the expectations of the report were the the kind of the the last hope, the last gasp of people who wanted a return to politics as they felt it used to be practiced, wanted a return to a sort of reasonable and rational dialogue, wanted facts to matter. They're like, give us a fact that is so immune to spin that it will have weight 
even in this environment that we live in now. And and it seems that what Barr is saying in his sort of summary report is is this report doesn't contain that. And you're looking for that 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 master fact that that can still work as facts used to work. And I'm telling you that you're not going to get that. And if we can't get that, then there's there's no point getting into the the details of this document because it's going to be full of facts but but unless it's somehow a master fact then it won't have any power because the ability to as- assemble and debate and discourse and all of this stuff just doesn't we 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 used to be able to do that we don't know how to do it anymore we were hoping that we get a chance to do it that way again and now that 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 wish has been denied and 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 my sense is that sort of the, the media scape and the commentariat who was sort of looking and waiting for the, for the report was kind of deflated. Yeah, yeah. well, although, although it's kind of, they've gotten more energy. I mean, because now... Am I overstating the case? Well, I mean, I don't think that... It's interesting. I don't think they're as deflated as, as, as you think. I mean, I've just been following the news and it's still Mueller most days. At like and, and how this editorial decision by Barr and all this... You know, it's interesting. There's a book... It came out several years ago. Several, I, 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 yeah, maybe I'm trying to think what the date was on, but it was called "When Prophecy Fails." It was by a social psychologists. They looked at messianic movements and prophetic movements, and they and they did this one contemporary movement when there were, it was a group that like was expecting aliens to come and in the state to you know judge humanity and everything, and the aliens didn't come. So what do you do, right? Well, they doubled down. And they said they came up with a reason why the aliens didn't come, and they proselytized more for the cause. So, well, we've gotten a reprieve, and now if we get enough people, then you know the aliens may give us more of a reprieve, and and we can you know more people can be vindicated. And so, like oftentimes, like and Mueller was this messianic figure, right? And and, mm-hmm. and you know, and Trump. I mean, the Republicans have put so much hope in Trump. More and more. I mean, Trump has the highest popularity ratings of any Republican president in years. Now, again, his approval ratings are relatively low by any modern standards but when you look at it among republicans it's pretty high and so yeah i mean i i, I think you're right about this that, that people see what they want to see where there's where there's you know if if people, yeah if critical yeah, if, if, if epistemology if one model of epistemology like critical realism right like you kind of where look, you realize that there is an external world to you, right? And yet, there's nothing. It, there isn't a, a world that's out there outside of you. And yet, your own lenses are the only way you can experience it. Such that you know, there's this dynamic interplay between the world that impinges on you and your lens, and they mutually shape each other. Well, I mean, and on some level, you look at this culture moment. It's like, well, that's just the lens. You know, <laughs> mm. so, <laughs> the lens okay. just shapes I, reality. I, I love this because so I'm, I want to read to you. I'm working on the next essay, as I always am. Uh, it's actually an essay that I'm going to be delivering as a talk next week in New Zealand. So I want to tell you more about that too. But um, this idea of reason and rationalism and and sort of being able to rationalize anything. So I want to read you this this paragraph and just get your take on it. Um, cause it's about, it's about the sort of seeing what we want to see. And uh, the, I'm going to kind of jump in mid paragraph, but the, the, the part we see began to outweigh the whole in our reality until eventually nowadays, the part we see has become the whole that we want to see. Um, magic pushed too far, declined into mere witchcraft. Myth pushed too far declined into mere superstition. 
reason pushed beyond our ability to see what's actually there declined into mere rationalism or rationalization maybe rationalization yeah and, and it seems that there's something there right that yeah that our, our power of reason which you know since sort of plato and socrates has has given us this this power of directed thought of making the world concrete of making concepts concrete so that we can work on those has in some way become like unanchored from whatever it needed to be anchored to to so that, to not just drift into a kind of you know a labyrinth of mental tricks where we can seem to manufacture fake truths what, what, so what do you what do you what do you think about that? I guess is one question, and then I guess what I really want to know is what was the anchor that sort of kept reason sort of a healthy, moderate reason? You know, I, I think back to the ancient Greeks. I mean, there was this Aristotelian golden mean, right? There was a there was a a moderation there, and I don't know if that was just because sort of at, at the origin of the age of the mind. There was still a kind of strong shadow of the age of myth, where where so much of our understanding of reality was about balance, about cycles, about sort of planting and the harvest and and heaven and earth, and 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 so it just seemed natural then that as we deploy these new powers of reason, that they would somehow be bounded by a sense of moderation and balance, or 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 is there something more? elemental that we've lost connection with that you know we that that we've we're no longer interested in anchoring our reason to things that are actually there we're only interested in anchoring our reason to sort of the previous idea that was it do you understand what i'm yeah 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 yeah. i mean it's interesting because you say that about the age of myth and the age of reason because you know you look at like plato and like the timaeus where he you know, early Plato seems to have a pretty low opinion of the physical order, and it's it's distorted, and, and you know, like, it's the realm of forms, the abstract, ethereal realm, non-material realm of forms, where all the truth is. Then probably some people, scholars of Plato, think maybe under the influence of Aristotle, he tries to kind of have a, his student Aristotle, he, he tries to sort of clean that view up a little bit, and he has this view of the Timaeus, and the Timaeus, where there's almost an artist in this demiurge that's like a craftsman that 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 is looking at the forms and then is shaping this pre-existent matter but even then plato goes to myth i mean he kind of he needs a mythical allegory to 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 kind of push towards and tell the story of what he's thinking is moving a little closer to what aristotle is saying although again still distinctive but that's just i mean that's interesting plato does that kind of stuff all the time right like or, or he just he, he makes new myths you know he's trying to get away from the the irrational homeric myths and yet winds up making new myths that seem to serve rationality. But then again, you could, I mean, I don't know, someone like Nietzsche would say there was, I mean, the age of reason is always rationalization, right? We're always, I mean, like, it's just, it's kind of the, the, the ones that we all agree on become kind of the ones that aren't rationalizations, right? Because we agree they're all not rationalizations. But then, but then what happens when, you know, they're, they're, and I'm not saying I agree with Nietzsche on that, but, 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 but there's a great, a, a significant grain of truth in that. And then what happens when, you're in a really fractured society and you can't agree on any of the rationalizations for the shared purpose mm. of, and so then everything should be, it's not even contestation. It's just combat. So that's interesting. So if I can like 
So if we got, we got to get Nietzsche on this podcast. Exactly. Be- because, you know, if he said like, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, what's real is whatever we all agree on. I guess the, the comeback or the question, you know, especially in the world we live in now, where it does seem that reality is bounded by some things. I mean, take, uh, take the environment and and actually so this this event next week in New Zealand is is kind of a global summit on um on the notion of a circular economy so how did how do we sort of create a a more harmonious relationship between industry and the environment uh, it, it should be a really interesting get together but you know you kind of want to ask Nietzsche but like is it like is is it really that as long as we all agree on it then that's that's a rational truth that that's that's that can be real for us is there not some kind of other reality you know a, 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 an, an anchor that comes outside of our capacity to you know create these mazes of thought in our head that 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 our rational power needs to bow down to and I, and i feel like that is kind of the Again, to connect it to the Mueller report, I feel like a lot of people, that's what they were hoping somehow the Mueller report would be, right? It would be this this anchoring piece of reality that our, our rationalizations would be unable to, you know, or, no, no, make disappear I, if they I, wanted I, to. No, or, I think their rationalizations, it's like a group of people said that their rationalizations would not be able to overcome, not because... Because it, I think it actually, pro- I mean, Bob Mueller is, you know, he was a Marine, he volunteered for Vietnam, got wounded. I mean, everybody that worked for this guy says this guy is just unbelievable. I mean, just a wonderful patriot and citizen. So he probably shot really straight, right? And that's probably what is frustrating to everybody. Like, there's not, th- there are a lot of facts, right? But they're facts that are, are not very ideological. They're, they're, they're facts, they're part of a story that's not very ideological. He's really trying to tell what he's seen. Right. And and I think and effectively say you interpret right, and I think that's part of the frustration that 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 the that the opponents of Trump weren't looking for something that was a fact that was because you know this might be that that how okay you know Trump it, this mm. report does not apparently exonerate Trump it just says that you know especially on obstruction this is kind of thorny because of intent and other things and they didn't interview him and yet it doesn't exonerate him there's so like but you know that's not so that seems very factual it's just not a fact that uh is existentially compelling you know to 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 trump's critics of which i've been of which i've been one i mean so you know like to be honest so Hmm. on a a complete side note um you know if and if we have uh any any creatively inclined listeners I, i really feel like we need some kind of jingle that we can play whenever you start quoting uh you know like plato and and the Timaeus and you know showing off your your philosophical Dude, I, theological I, 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 it's just, this is stuff I remember from you know I don't it's not I'm, I'm not a I'm not a, a philosophical scholar by any means. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, I could send you this awesome thing I've used with undergrads though to explain Immanuel Kant. It's like it, it's like this somebody wrote <laughs> See, right a concept epistemology. Right it's need, the best I need, thing I need, ever. I need, I need the jingle. Like, oh, was, yeah, I know I'm talking about undergrads, but Immanuel Kant. And I want to have like some kind of like Scott dropping the mic sound effect or something like that. You know what's interesting? I was thinking about what you were talking about, like all the stuff. Like, there was a group 
in the early 20th century in Mar at the University of Marburg. There were the Marburg neo Kantians and Herman Cohen and some other people. But they were kind of like Kant with like for Kant, right? You have these categories of understanding like space, time, all these things. But for Kant, they're not out there; they're in our mind. But they interpret phenomena, right? So we don't know what things are outside of human experience. Like now, you see what where this makes sense. Like a table is a bunch of moving atoms, right? But it doesn't look like that to us. It looks like a stable thing. And so Kant's trying to, but the Marburg neo-Kantians were like, oh no, there is no phenomenal world. It, the whole world's just made up by the categories of understanding. So people th think they were like the most constructive epistemologists that ever lived. But like, but that's kind of like a more unrefined view of that. Like, I think some of what we're describing here is like, you just like, like our, you know, our, our, our lenses don't, aren't trying often to interpret reality, but to shape it, <laughs> like to see what we want. Yeah. And I, I mean, and maybe that is the, the kind of healthy mutation that the kind of struggles that, you know, and more and more people are kind of concentrating on, whether it's, you know, Brexit or, uh, the politics in the U.S. or climate change, or you know, kind of the problems that, however we're, however we're conceptualizing reality, don't seem to admit for solutions. You know, I wonder if that's the kind of healthy mutation that is underway of of you know just evolving, just different ways of realizing, different ways of awareing of of the world and what's real and, and what are the forces at work and how we engage and, and shape with them. And, you know, I kind of, so to, to name drop, you know, I think of kind of the, the classic pairing of, was it Heraclitus and Parmenides? Right, right, right. Right. So, you know, Heraclitus being, it's all about change. You'll never step Parmenides in the same river twice. Right. Or, or it's like you do, but you don't, right. Because it is the same river, but it's also changed. And, you know, I, I, through the Industrial Revolution, you know, so many mechanistic metaphors entered into just our our way of being conscious of the world, and 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 so very, uh, very much more sort of the 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 Parmenides end of the spectrum. And I wonder if this is sort of part of what we're doing to, is we're going to have to do is is you know th these convulsions are are kind of challenging us to to somehow come to. You know Heraclitus's view of of how reality is. There's a so, great there book. Is, there, there is no spoon, is what I'm trying to say. There's a great book by a guy, a theologian, who teaches at King's College, Colin Gunton, and he wrote a book called "The One, the Three, and the Many." And he says in the beginning of it, he's like basically every every um, he says like every almost every Western intellectual struggle can be traced back to Heraclitus versus Parmenides. And so he thinks of these areas that were, were like where we're romanticism or what we call postmodernity fragmentation and stuff, the Heraclitian, like like unity is an illusion versus totalitarianism, right? Like where the state, the one is the most important, right? And then everything else finds its meaning as it gets drawn into the one. And, and these kinds of tensions between, you know, the, 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 where unity becomes the oneness becomes the primary organizing principle. And then any diversity is really just subservient to that versus the sort of where the many is the reality. Any unity is kind of just mythical and what we impose on it for our own kind of sanity or something. It's a great book. Mm -hmm. Put it in the show notes. Show notes. I'm going to add it to the list of books that I need to read because Scott has recommended them to me. It's a great, it's so yet. well read. It's so well written. It's, it's, it's such a good book. So back to New Zealand. Okay. Okay. You were there when the Christchurch shooting happened. 
I was there on the day, so I was... Um, How was, far were you from? Well, I, to be fair, so I was on the North Island in a, a wonderful seaside town called New Plymouth. Uh, Christchurch is on the South Island and on the other coast. Do you know me? How many maps in the world don't have New Zealand on it? Like John Oliver did a whole thing on it. Like yeah, they just omit. Right. They just omit it. And uh, and and didn't he say or 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 did did they do it on um, on last week tonight? Like they provided some downloadable. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so you can like print it off and stick it on your map if it's missing a map in New Zealand. Kiwi Kiwis get a bit touchy about uh, about that. And yet and yet I think they're kind of conflicted. I mean, people who live in New Zealand aren't necessarily eager for the whole rest of the world to find them um part of the bliss of it's middle earth place. yeah it's middle it's a it's a country uh i think like about the size of the united kingdom uh the united kingdom has you know somewhere around 70 million people on these isles and new zealand has five so you know it's space uh it's 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 big sky country it's beautiful um I, I was there speaking at a, an energy sector forum, which that in itself was really interesting because this was it's basically the uh, New Zealand energy industry talking about um, talking about moving uh, New Zealand to a, a post carbon economy. Uh, so the the country has uh, as a, as a policy choice decided to be like carbon carbon free, carbon neutral. I forget what, exactly what it is by about twenty fifty. And, uh, it, you know, it, it just, I mean, I'm a geek, so I find the, the details of implementing that endlessly fascinating. It, New Zealand has a lot of renewable resource. It has, like, uh, hydropower and stuff like that. Um, but their hydro is mainly snowmelt. Ah. So it snows in the winter, it melts, and that drives the hydro dams, right? Which is great. But what do you do for the dry winter? You put in new, you, you put in a couple nuclear power plants. Problem like, like Sweden. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. So I don't Sweden, know why they, Sweden, it just do problem. everything that Sweden does. Yeah. So you know, so stuff like that. How do you how do you make this work and um, and all the ins and outs of so that? Sweden really, has really it perfect because they have hydro stuff and they have really efficient nuclear stuff. Where as Germany has all this renewable stuff that they celebrate, right? But what do they do when it's not sunny or windy? Coal. Right, so they just like screw their. I like. I mean, Germany kind of screws their that what they what they gain carbon wise, or or what they lose in the, in in the renewables, they put back with all the coal stuff. It's like that's why Sweden's awesome. Yeah, it's, I mean, every country has its own basket of of challenges dealing with. You know, how do we? Yeah, you know, assuming you believe the science. <laughs> Assuming you 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 live in a country where it's required to believe the science, like if it's some kind of faith based thing um, on climate change, uh, then every country kind of has its own sort of kettle of challenges to deal with. A anyway, that that's all just context for it. So you know we're doing this wonderful workshop, and it's about three p.m. and I've been in this sort of boardroom for the whole day, and so I just step out to get some air, and uh, I come back, and that's when uh, I see a guy just outside the meeting hall, and he's on his on his phone, he's just put it down, and he clearly looks distraught. And I said, "What's up?" And he said, uh, "Oh, that was uh, that was my daughter. Their their school is in lockdown." I'm like, "What? What do you mean?" And he said, "No, there's been apparently some shooting in in Christchurch. That was that was as it was happening, maybe within five minutes of the event. At that point, I didn't even know that there had been fatalities." Uh, and then the next thing I knew, about a few hours later, was at uh, a music festival. Um, 
in 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 the same the same city big annual global music festival called called Womad which actually Peter Gabriel started and he's now got them going all over the world but they do their anchor event is in New Zealand and uh sort of over there in sort of the VIP section and that's when the 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 fatalities counts started to come out and it was really interesting I mean, so many dimensions of this story were really impactful but I was. I happened to be hanging out with um, uh, Peter Gabriel's business partner. So they'd founded this music festival together, and and he and Peter were 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 texting in real time at that moment. Basically, how what do we do in response to this? Because here we are at a music festival, which is you know supposed to be this happy, playful event, and and there is this tragedy under unfolding right now. And uh, they, I, I thought they did something brilliant, and they got all the artists together, and they said, look. The reason that we founded this music festival in 80-something, I, I forget, it was 30 years. It was the 25th, the 30th anniversary of the festival. So the reason that we founded this was that on the firm belief that the only thing that can conquer hate is love. And, and, and that's why we're here. And that's why you're here. And that's why your art is important. And, and every act every artist who went on stage the whole weekend basically reiterated that message that that this is how we how we conquer it was it was really quite moving and and quite beautiful i mean and and i mean we we can talk about the particular politics in new zealand and how they've move very quickly in response to that's that unbelievable as an american but, it, it, to hear like the prime minister say hey we're going to change our gun like that's just like it, it, unfathomable for an american <laughs> not just on the gun thing because of the second amendment and stuff like i mean if we didn't have the second amendment you'd still have it's not like we'd have no guns in this country or anything like that but like but any kind of gun the problem is any gun legislation has this constitutional tension where everybody's got this right so you're impinging mm -hmm. on a right as opposed to it's a privilege to have firearms or something like that, like or it's not, you know. So, so and well, then and then just like we can't do any, we don't have the political will to do anything in America. Lately, it seems like so. Well, that's just amazing to me. It, it's it's a great example of um, what is that? What is that concept I hear everyone throwing about these days? The Overton window. Oh yeah 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 yeah. Where right. you so uh, so yeah. like gun violence has become completely normalized in the United States, and so a mass shooting happens. And there is no, there is no kind of uh, visceral rejection of that to say this is not us. Whereas in New Zealand, this this event was clearly outside of their, you know, quote unquote, Overton window. It there was a, a I mean, and in fact, I think that was sort of the big theme in reaction that this is not us. This does not happen here and and i think that that the the kind of universal acceptance of that uh sort of you know uh truth that everyone agreed on is what enabled uh the government to say you know and and therefore so now let's just formalize that that rejection of this behavior that we all agree has no place here we'll just formalize that in law and 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 so, but given that there was already a very clear and 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 you know more or less universal sense that this is not us, this yeah. doesn't belong here, uh, formalizing it wasn't, I think, such a big political task. So it's it, it it really you know then it kind of 
it, it helps to illuminate what the issue is in the United States. And, and arguably it's not, it's not sort of the constitution or, or the arrangement of political forces. It is the normalization yeah. of something that, that's totally, that's just part of American life. Yeah. Right? If you don't like it, get a gun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And even people, and, I don't know- and even people that don't like gun control, that want gun control, like Bill Maher, he's like, look, I want, but I have a gun because everybody else has one. So it's one of these things, even if you don't like guns uh, and you want gun control, you get, you got to get, because everybody's got a gun, you know, it's, 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 it's crazy. So, so I feel like this is a good question to ask you. Uh, I do you know, not have okay. a, I do not have a gun. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, think, I grew up in a home. You know, that does was, make me feel a bit better, actually. I, that wasn't my question, but it makes me I grew up in a home <laughs> with a lot of guns. I mean, my dad had a lot of guns and stuff. I just, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not a gun guy. I don't like guns. So my question to you, and and I suppose it's a question to you know not just you an American, but you who um, who you know uh, has a community of parishioners and 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 listeners that you talk to about these things. How how does one sort of how does one purge the unhelpful normalization? How does one restore a kind of uh innocence or 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 a sense of what shouldn't be such that if it does occur there is a a strong reaction uh against it that can can mobilize people like how 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 do we how do we well, how, how do I express what I'm trying to express? I think you know what I'm trying to express. Yeah, I don't know. It's challenging in America because, you know, again, we have, you see shootings in schools that happen so often and people are horrified. And yet the people, it's funny because you have some basic th- things like increased background checks, right? Like 80% of NRA members are for that. Like, and yet the gun lobby, it, like, it's one of those things where you feel like, well, if you give them, an inch, they'll take a mile. So, so you, so you fight tooth and nail on everything to 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 preserve your own kind of political square footage or square mileage, so that you don't lose any of your territory. And I, I don't, I don't, I yeah, it's a it's a difficult thing in the United States because I think that that's not like that's not like kind of how we process stuff. And I, I mean, I remember last year when there was the shooting at, and I don't remember the name. Stonewall Douglas, what the one in Florida, there? the big one yeah. in Florida, yeah, and 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 then the students there sort of mobilized, yeah, 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 movement, yeah, and and I and I thought then like, oh, maybe this is going to be it, like maybe maybe it is the power of youth telling the adults that somehow this needs to change that might create I don't know how, but some you know be at least be a new voice. And a new force of influence that might lead to a different result. But in in hindsight, I suppose that was quite naive of me. To... <laughs> On a different kind of somewhat related, I don't know. I mean, kind of related. But like I found this piece in The Atlantic by a guy named Graham Wood, who's an interesting commentator, staff writer at The Atlantic. And he he said, after Christchurch, commentators are imitating Sebastian Gorka, who is a, was a Trump advisor and is a Fox News guy. And he opens this way. He says, after the 2015 
Paris attacks by ISIS commandos, Donald Trump's counterterrorism advisor, Sebastian Gorka, wrote these notorious lines blaming the ideology of radical Islam for, for the atrocity. These attacks are the latest manifestation of a growing and globalized ideology of radical Islam that must be addressed at its source, which includes the mainstream imams and media personalities who nurture, promote, and excuse it. They were inspired by a thriving online ideological structure that recruits and radicalizes mostly men to save the caliphate from the kufar infidels. The threat we're facing isn't just individual terrorists. It's the global ideology of radical Islam. We have to take it seriously and call out imams, academics, and media personalities who give it a platform under the guise of exploring both sides, fostering debate or avoiding political correctness. Now, he says, except these words weren't by Sebastian Gorka at all. They were written by the New York Times, in the New York Times by... Wajat Ali, f- hours after the massacre of, ni- of 50 Muslims at prayer in Christchurch, New Zealand on March 15th. I swapped white, white nationalism for radical Islam, politicians for imams, and Western civilization for the caliphate. So it's very interesting that this is on the cover. He's like, look, look, most New York Times people were horrified at the kind of rhetoric Sebastian Gorka used. And yet, hey, you're lumping everybody together. You're not nuanced enough. And then he talked about how in this tragedy commentators were contorting themselves. He says that, you know, after Christchurch, everyone discovered all at once that ideology matters. Four years ago, commentators were contorting themselves to attribute jihadism to politics, social conditions, abnormal psychology, anything but the spread of wicked beliefs that lead more or less directly to violence. And he just talks about how uh, nobody says that, uh, that this guy who committed this uh, awful act of violence what if he uh, was mistreated by Pakistanis on a, on a, a you know on a business trip overseas and was radicalized that way? The, the kind, so it's very interesting because he talks about how uh, some people were were uh, were blaming everyone from Trump to Sam Harris to Jordan Peterson for uh, this for sharing the blame in this attack because they use Islamophobic statements. And he's kind of like, if we can't tell the difference between this shooter, Richard Spencer, another white supremacist guy who was involved in the Charlottesville stuff in the United States, who, to his knowledge, has never advocated violence, Sam Harris, Don, you know, Trump and Jordan Peterson, we've got a problem. <laughs> just like, mm-hmm. just like, rightly so, uh, on uh, after is, is, Islamic attacks by radical extremists, we're careful to say, look, this isn't all of Islam. It's not even all of uh, very traditionalist kind of Islamic communities that uh, across the world that have a tenuous and sometimes antagonistic relationship to the West. That this is a very you know that we don't that we sort we try to look at, at things particularly and 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 how basically it's a pretty interesting piece. Uh, you know, he points that somebody said, uh, who was it? The commentator that said, um, Jay. Well, uh, okay. There's this. Um, uh, C.J. Wellerman, a, com- a columnist for Middle East Eye, tweeted last weekend that ISIS appeals to roughly 0.000001% of Muslims, whereas the right-wing extremism represents the views and attitudes of roughly 30 to 40% of white people. He says, well, one of the problems is that if you got 0.000001% of the world's 1.8 billion Muslims, you'd have 1.8 Muslims. <laughs> A substantial <laughs> undercount of ISIS adherents. Uh, you know, you know. But then he says, you know, but people like Sam Harris and and, you, and and Jordan Peterson seem to think the Obama America was, you know, good a good place in getting better. So that you can't say that they're fascist or white nationalists, and that we have this kind of problem that when we're, you know, 
anxious about something. It's just like we were talking about before. Sometimes our lenses that shape reality come up and we just sort of want to, you know, see what we are feeling and not see what's there. I, mm. I, I just thought it was interesting that mm. like the, the exact kind of stuff that people thought was overgeneralizing in the Paris attacks was was done and 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 extolled by some of the you know same press that condemned the kind of overgeneralizing rightly that was done in 2015. I thought that's fa- it's interesting argument. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, that's really good commentary. You know, helping us to see, um, you know, to some extent the inconsistencies in how we frame things and 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 the biases that it reveals. I I got a couple of thoughts. I mean, one is just. I, this this question of you know a faculty of reason and rationalization that allows us to see what we want to see you know i i that's that that that's got to be i think one of the sort of big questions of of our generation to figure out how do we get past that cuz i don't think that's going to work long term um, the other, uh, just uh, on a much more uh, practical or gossipy level. So Jordan Peterson, he was supposed to speak at Cambridge University, uh, and this is recent news, made the headlines here. And then uh, Cambridge University withdrew the invitation. No, no, no. He was going to come on a one month like visiting fellowship. Yeah. And then the university withdrew it because there was, uh, I, I guess, just too much pushback or controversy from from some faculty and some students. Um, I, I I haven't yet, you know, ever had a chance to sit down with with uh, with with Jordan and really kind of see where he's at. But I, I was I was surprised that. Well, I mean, I don't know what went into the decision to offer him an invitation to come hang around for a month, but I was kind of surprised that um, that they would then rescind. And, and he's not out of that the, invitation. He's not out of the sort of British Canadian American mainstream. Like, I mean, you might not. One individual A, B, or C might not like that he's in the mainstream, right? Like, and that's fair. Like, but it's not as though he represents e- extremists. I mean, he's he represents a, a center right to right part of the ideological spectrum that a lot of people identify with. That's you know, I, I think he also represents. I mean, I I I I tend to think of things you know more in sort of historical dimensions rather than. Um, sort of present day political dimensions, and I think that you know he historically he represents uh, you know a react a reaction of of um, uh, sort of a, a a paternalistic worldview. Uh, absolutely, that, that, yeah. that feels that that worldview is is under flux or under threat, and and you got men who are you know displaced and 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 feel and and aren't and feel they don't know how to be men. I'm I'm not talking about human. I'm talking about people that use the you know men's room you know they're like the guys that you know are having a tough way navigating certain aspects of late modernity and he speaks some of that and again it's not the prescriptions i you know i i would resonate with her offer but he's not a dumb i mean i saw him on bill maher he was intriguing like he was very he bill maher had a, some substantial points of agreement i mean he's he's a complicated enough thinker that he he's worth engage, engaging in a place like cambridge you know that, that that's yeah, I- Totally, what the university's for, and and you know, and so engaging is the word. You know, I, I think of you know the the whole discourse on radical Islam, and and it even came up in Canadian 
political news. I know that you don't get any headlines out of Canada, but the Canadian conser- the leader of the Conservative Party, he, he got some blowback for not for not naming uh, what was going on in Christchurch, for not naming Islamophobia, and 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 I I just feel like there there is just very weak engagement in society, uh, you know, certainly in 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 Western society with Islam. And and the only time it tends to sort of, you know, pop up in conversation is, you know, when there is some kind of violent event. And and, and that is because um, you know, I there's just there's just people aren't forming enough friendships and relationships. <laughs> we had uh, do you remember at uh, at at Base Camp Toronto? Uh, Nadia Oidat. I don't know if you had a chance to to meet her. This I did. I did. Yeah, fa- fabulously interesting Jordanian woman. Um, she's uh, now a, a professor at University of Kansas. She teaches. Uh, she she teaches on Islam. She's a fellowship on uh, at at New America. Uh, she does research uh, exploring like secular uh, secular. Uh, Arabic movements and like ecumenical Islam, all oh, totally, totally fascinating stuff. Um, and uh, you know, and, and me being here in London, there is just so much contact with the Middle East. Actually, so much uh, Middle Eastern wealth is here in the city. I'm often on business trips or speaking trips in, uh, you know, Oman or the UAE. I haven't yet been to Saudi Arabia. Looking forward to going to Jordan. You know, it's just it's just another rich, fascinating uh, part of the world. And and when it when a civilization is that to you, then I think it's easier to put um, you know violent events in a healthier perspective as you know part of what every civilization um, you know has to work with and and you know how do we how do we work those parts of our civilization out? Um, but you know it it is just so easy to uh, dehumanize whole sectors of the human experience into, uh, you know, those are terrorists or those are victims uh, because we just don't have a thick encounter in our lives. This guy, Graham Wood, concludes this piece by saying, to differentiate on an ideological spectrum is hard, but to fail to differentiate leads to catastrophic blunders. If you blindly swat at enemies and blindly extend courtesy to friends, the predictable result is that your friends get swatted and your enemies indulge. They may not send you thank you notes, but I promise they are grateful. I, I thought that's an interesting point where where you that nuance is important. You know, that that and, and yeah, you're right, probably in a context like the UK where you're just dealing relationally more with Islamic citizens and immigrants, you just, you know, I mean, well, I mean, I guess it could cut one of two ways. Anxiety could lead you to not differentiate. But I I think that Hmm. it it also probably offers many the the possibility to differentiate and and be nuanced and have a subtle appreciation from of what's of who is in front of you rather than who your lenses are 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 showing or presenting to you, you know, letting that person present to you. Hmm. <laughs> there you go, man. We're 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 both we're both like stunned into silence by by each other's each other's reflections. But I think I think you're right. I mean, but um, I think that it all comes circles so back. It, I mean, because in the beginning we were talking about these fat, like the 
but how our lens, how like basically, you, again, we ought to want to have lenses on reality that are shaped by. Re- I mean, we everything is subjective, right? And if if our lenses through experience are our lenses, and we can't experience things other than our, through our own subjectivity, but we we ought to hope that that through that, that there is an objective out there enough that shapes our lenses and makes them more amenable. Yeah, to exactly. to to not just being uh, rationalizing, but actually helping us rationally engage what's out there as opposed and, and to yet, just turning it into a sort of closed circuit reality. Exactly. So this is why, you know, we, I don't know, sentiment, we, we got to get Aristotle or, or ideally, ideally Plato um, on this, on this podcast and kind of like go back to the beginning of this rational journey and, and kind of talk about, so, you know, so this is what we're doing with our powers of reason now. Right, I can kind of, I can get myself to believe anything, with my powers of reason, and my rationalizations, and and the mental mazes that I can, that I can construct, in my head. Is is that what you do, Plato? You know, or or like what what is the anchor for you? Or you know, and if we get Aristotle, like so, this golden mean thing, like okay, but like where, why? Why does that weigh? Where where is the authority of a kind of balance of a boundary for what we can reason come from? Is is it because you are, you know, by virtue of kind of being twenty five hundred years closer to sort of our our prehistoric cave origins that you're just closer to nature, and that we've spent sort of twenty five hundred years segmenting the whole into measurable parts that we can no longer see the whole, that at one time, before we had religion, before we had myth, before we had, you know, any capacity to break the whole into measurable pieces, it it was just obvious that there was a kind of a unity, a, 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 a connectedness that we were a part of. And, you know, and so we've been extricating ourselves from that whole you know, pretty much since we walked out of the cave. And, and and you, Plato and Aristotle, you gave us this this powerful new way to, to, to kind of step to, to step out of myth and to see all of that as these are just ideas, guys. These are just concepts, constructs, and we can we can question them and, and we can we can direct our thinking kind of wherever we want it to go. We don't have to be locked into these mythical cycles of life. We can we can we can step out of that and just and just will ourselves into new directions. But, but you know what I think Plato and Aristotle had one advantage is there was not a distinction between or, or I mean okay that the, there was an integration between the pursuit of the true, the good and the beautiful. And I think we have lost that. So Ooh, say say that again. That, say that for again. The, for Aristotle and Plato both even though they have different routes to it like that the true the, the pursuit of the tr- the good the true and the beautiful are integrated pursuits and, and they're all real right so i think mm. for us mm. the true is sketchy because of you know you fake news facts or anything and then the good and the beautiful are just matters of taste right mm. so so yeah, so like i think that leads yeah. to a kind of nihilism so, that yeah, they don't so have this is so you say it's matters of taste which is to say like we've We've internalized that into kind of our personal aesthetic, whereas for them, that was a public aesthetic. Yeah, this is A.O. Scott, the New York Times film 
critic wrote this great book on criticism. And in it, he talks about how criticism at its best is trying to sort of be a bridge between the objective and subjective poles. Because beauty is something that there's, hmm. there's, of course, there's, an, you know, it, it's, you can't ever have just objective aesthetics because there's a subjective dimension, but, but you can broaden and have a wider, like, you know, you can bridge that gap some with criticism. And I think that, but by and large, again, and it kind of, I mean, we bracket off the good and, and the beautiful as, you know, as, as matters of, of, of value, not like truth or, or preference. And now even truth is getting <laughs> that way. You know, so I yeah, think that's, that's, that's right. Right. So yeah, that's exactly it. So now, you know, the, the, like the, the good and the beautiful have become this personal aesthetic and, and now truth has become a personal aesthetic. And, and so that's what kind of leads me to, so my hunch is that what's happening here is that, uh, you know, we, we've taken sort of the mental age. We've taken the power of reason too far that, that there is a kind of a moderation of, 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 of the power of the mind. And, and beyond that, it is actually some kind of deficient form. Yeah. Oh, of, yeah. Yeah. Of, of yeah. consciousness. Yeah. And, and, and we've entered that deficient phase. And you can see it in so many, I mean, Politics. We've been talking about it all this time, um, but also, you know, environment in, in our relationship with with life and death. In so many areas of our living, there is this anxiety that we no longer know how to navigate it. We're kind of who is it? Uh, so name dropping again. I think it was um, uh, Gramsci. What was his first name? Ant- Gramsci is this famous. Uh, uh, Sort of, I guess, political theorist on ideology, but but Gramsci. Uh, Do you ever hear his his definition of crisis? Gram, Gramsci said that crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. Yeah, yeah. You know, it doesn't that kind of feel like that's the yeah sense that the old is dying. It doesn't work anymore, and 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 we're kind of reached an exhaustion point of our way of working in our way of awaring, if I can create that verb, of the world, but also we can't get out of it. Yeah, yeah. And so the new cannot be born. And so we're in this crisis, and I think that we just feel it everywhere. And it's kind of the underlying theme of so much of the surface stuff that we're uh, grappling with in the world today, and, and that that's the task, actually, of of our time, is to figure out how how can a new be born and and my sense is that the answer somehow is is going to be like a pretty fundamental mutation in just the way that we frame the problem because we framed it in a way that yeah it's crisis there's no way out of this it's paradox it it's just intractable conflict and there's got to be a sort of you know as, as einstein said you know at a higher level of thinking we kind of see the 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 way of navigating through the paradox that we've navigated into, dude. Gramsci, dude, we got a lot. We we got a lot of work. To yeah, do. Gramsci. <laughs> Gra- Gramsci also came up with the term organic intellectual, which is what we're trying to be right here. The Atlas Project, dude. That's we it, got, man. We got some serious mapping work. You know what? I, last thing, and I gotta, we gotta let each other go, and, and probably our listeners. But um, I was reading about, uh, I was reading about. The, the the motif of the journey 
and the myth of journey. And, you know, like think about, uh, what was his name? The hero's journey. Um, Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell. Thank you. Beto, Beto O'Rourke is reading that right now. He said, (laughs) it's on a journey, dude. Good for Beto. But uh, so interesting thing, and, and I know Joseph Campbell talks about this, but it, it, it wasn't what I was reading at the time. But the idea that, that the motif of uh, the sea journey, the journey out to sea, yeah. uh, is, is consistent across uh, virtually every culture. And the reason why is that uh, er- every culture needed, uh, needed a way, needed a story about investigating the soul. That every journey is ultimately a journey of the self. Yeah. That we go out and we come back somehow changed. And uh, dude, not not to get all sappy, but I feel like that's the journey that we're on together. Amen to that, brother. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it too. This is good stuff. Sh- ahoy, matey. And uh, so any listeners out there, if you've got some good jingles that I can drop whenever Send them name drops. Send I want them, them, please. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Peace out. Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.